You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of the opening plenary address, which was given by Professor Alexandra Walsham from the University of Cambridge. Her paper was entitled The Pope's Merchandise and the Jesuits' Trumpery, Catholic Relics and Protestant Polemic in Early Modern Britain. Thank you very much for that excessively generous introduction and and also for the invitation. It's always a a great pleasure to come to Ireland, especially as as a historian primarily of the other side of the Irish Sea. Um, I do uh, want in this paper to to endeavour to make some comparisons with with Ireland, though my main focus does does remain England. In 1641, on the eve of the Civil War, an etching entitled This Burden Back to Rome was published in London by Wenceslas Holler. It depicts the bearded figure of Father Time with his trademark scythe and hourglass, carrying a triple tiara pope, St Peter's scepter and crossed keys on his aged back, together with a peddler's pack and trunk of trash and Romish trumperies, deluding shows and infernal forgeries. The verses below tell us that he's transporting this load of vanity, which includes a bishop's mitre and clerical beretta, back to the sink of vice and iniquity that is the seat of Antichrist, deploying a miscellaneous collection of physical objects as a visual symbol of the evils of popery. This broadside embodies the earnest Protestant hope that all tangible remnants of the popish past will be swept away as a prelude to the triumphant consummation of the prolonged and imperfect reformation in Britain and Ireland. The assumptions that underpin this striking image have proved extremely resilient. Following the footsteps of early modern polemicists, modern scholars have paid relatively little attention to the material culture of Roman Catholicism. They have tended to echo the prejudices of contemporaries in regarding relics, sacramentals and vestments as subjects unworthy of academic inquiry. Until the mid-20th century, their study was largely a fringe activity carried out by devout writers in the recusant history tradition, whose endeavours only served to confirm their credulity in the eyes of their Protestant counterparts. Recently, however, historians of both the Middle Ages and the era of the Counter-Reformation have begun to subject them to more sophisticated scrutiny. Approached as entities that hover on the blurred and porous boundary between person and thing, subject and object, and which occupy a liminal position between the realms of the human and divine, these mundane material items, rendered precious and irreplaceable by their provenance and history, are now yielding compelling new insights. This paper has two interconnected objectives. It seeks to explore the place of relics and other religious objects in Catholic devotion in post-Reformation Britain and Ireland in tandem with how they came to be perceived by these officially Protestant societies. 
It examines beliefs alongside collection, treatment and use, and it probes the origin and evolution of attitudes and concepts against the backdrop of the antagonism and conflict engendered by the Reformation. It suggests that these developments had some intriguing consequences. They not only led to the formation of an enduring and distinctive nexus between the relic and the commodity, they also helped to link the category of holy matter inextricably with the idea of ephemerality. Relics have been an element of Christian religiosity since the era of the primitive church. A key component of the cults of the earliest martyrs and of holy persons officially canonised or popularly celebrated as saints, pious veneration of them was underpinned by several assumptions. Respect for the bodies of the dead was rooted in the doctrine of the resurrection. The idea that bodies reduced to dust by natural processes of decomposition would be reunited with souls at the last judgment. That the mortality and transience of the skeleton and flesh would be overcome when the trumpet sounded. A second assumption was that a tiny portion or fragment stood for the whole. This justified the subdivision of entire bodies into smaller units and their distribution to the faithful, a process that gathered momentum in the late Middle Ages alongside other associated practices such as autopsy and the dissection of the corpses of sanctified persons. Actual and metaphorical partition of holy objects, writes Caroline Walker Bynum, became central to piety. These processes were linked with the enclosure of relics in reliquaries and by procedures for their preservation. Ephemeral objects were rendered durable and distinguished from ordinary detritus by the elaborate, expensive metal and jewel containers in which they were encased. Increasingly, relics were regarded as exhibiting properties that defied the natural processes of decay to which bodies were subject. Reports that they were incorruptible and incombustible, resistant to decomposition and fire, proliferated. It was also often alleged that they displayed a capacity to invert the normal order in other respects. They emitted not the stench of rotting flesh, but the sweet perfume or odour of sanctity. They bled afresh, despite the fact that they were long dead. They behaved in ways that implied they were living and animate objects rather than immutable matter. The same was true of the plethora of secondary or contact relics engendered when other items touched sanctified remains. These were especially important in the cases of Christ and the Virgin Mary, both of whom were believed to have been assumed bodily into heaven. Hence, the multiplication of relics of the true cross, crown of thorns, holy blood, as well as Jesus' manger and of the milk, girdle and holy house of the mother of God. In medieval Ireland, these associative relics, including book and bell shrines and holy croziers, were perhaps more important than corporeal ones, partly because bodily remains of its early saints were destroyed in Viking raids, but also for other reasons that remain a little unclear. The cult of saints here was more closely rooted in the landscape in the guise of wells, trees and stones. Relics must also be situated on a continuum with sacramentals. 
objects hallowed by virtue of ecclesiastical rituals of sanctification, such as the wax tablets impressed with the figure of the Lamb of God, known as Agnus Dei, blessed by the papacy, and portable devotional items like rosaries. Nor is it helpful to demarcate relics too sharply from religious images. The distinction between real instantiations and mere representations of the sacred was no less blurred as weeping statues and moving crucifixes such as the Rood of Boxley reveal. The example of Veronica's veil, a cloth miraculously impressed with the outline of Christ's face, is further evidence of the difficulty of drawing hard and fast boundaries. Nor did the advent of printing and the capacity for mass mechanical reproduction necessarily undermine the aura of sanctity in the way Walter Benjamin once argued so influentially. On the contrary, it might be suggested that print enabled people to venerate relics and hallowed images vicariously and provided those who purchased and possessed them with the opportunity to gain indulgences without undertaking arduous pilgrimages to them. One relevant development is the emergence of illustrated catalogues of relics, such as those at Bamberg, Nuremberg, and even more famously, the massive 19,000-strong collection of the Elector Frederick of Saxony. Walker Bynum contends that the late Middle Ages saw the paradoxical coexistence of two apparently opposing tendencies – unprecedented enthusiasm for material sacrality alongside renewed doubt, scepticism and suspicion about its compatibility with true spirituality. She identifies an intensifying rejection and an intensifying revering of matter as the locus of the divine. Implicit in Christian theology from the beginning and articulated by Guibert of Nogent in the 12th century, this unease and ambivalence about material culture and about the capacity of relic worship to spill over into superstition re-emerged in the writings of humanists and heretics in the late Middle Ages. Erasmus reproved the external piety of his day and its physical props as manifestations of vanitas. While the Lollards fiercely criticised a religion that encouraged the veneration of crumbling bones, wooden stocks and stones, replicating the idolatry committed by the ancient heathens. Worries about forgery and fabrication and about the rampant commodification of holy remains and their sumptuous decoration and opulent display became more overt and vocal. These polemical themes fused and intertwined in early Reformation England and Ireland and were further reinforced by vehement Protestant assaults launched by Luther, Calvin and other Swiss reformers. The Henrician regime coordinated a concerted campaign to expose renowned relics as delusions and fakes, such as the blood of Hales, which was revealed to be that of a duck and they publicly destroyed cult objects to demonstrate theatrically that they were nothing more than ordinary matter. In the wake of these scandals, the Catholic Church displayed embarrassment and caution and stepped back from openly promoting relic devotion. Another index and symptom of this was a hiatus in canonization. However, this phase of restraint soon gave way to a militant reaffirmation of the validity of the cult of saints and relics by the Council of Trent in 1563. 
although it acknowledged the danger of superstition, sought to regulate disorder and abuse and tighten up measures for authentication, it simultaneously upheld reverence for hallowed remains as entirely fitting features of Christian devotion. The later 16th century resurgence of relic culture was greatly assisted by the discovery of the catacombs of Priscilla in 1578, and the following century and a half saw the translation of hundreds of the martyrs' bones to locations across the continent, including cities and territories that had lost their own to the ravages of iconoclasm. Rome now competed with Cologne, the centre of the cult of St Ursula and the 11,000 virgins, as a major relic warehouse. But those imported holy remains were often eclipsed by those of indigenous and local heroes. For instance, the 14th century Czech saint Nepomuk, famous for his incorruptible tongue, became the focus of a vibrant cult in the wake of the vigorous re-Catholicisation of Bohemia by a potent combination of force and persuasion after 1621. Relic piety became a hallmark of the Catholic pretensions of the Habsburg king Philip II and a key dimension of programmes for the sanctification of Catholic communities, nations and states. English and Irish Catholic exiles and missionary priests keenly upheld practices condemned by their Protestant opponents as superstitious and idolatrous. The Elizabethan priest uh, and exile Gregory Martin's Roma Sancta lovingly catalogued the famous relics in the churches of Rome, and his treaties of Christian peregrination castigated the heretics for their incredulity turning the reformer's stress on the intangibility of the divine on its head, he accused them of exceeding the fault of the doubting Apostle Thomas himself and refusing to believe in the holy things, even when they could touch, handle and see them. The Jesuit Henry Garnett added a spirited defence of relics and hallowed and sanctified creatures as forms of spiritual medicine and celestial food to his translation of Peter Canisius's influential catechism for the edification of English readers in 1593. And Richard Archdeacon's Treatise on Miracles of 1667 similarly celebrated the capacity of relics to effect miraculous cures, including six Irish cases of the thaumaturgic wonders wrought by the remains of Francis Xavier in the Spanish Netherlands. But in contexts of prescription and persecution, it could be difficult to sustain the kind of public relic cult that typically flourished in Catholic countries. Successive sets of Reformation statutes and injunctions ordered the removal of relics and monuments of superstition so that no memory of the same remained. And the violent purges of the middle decades of the 16th century led to the obliteration of destruction of many thousands of sacred uh, remnants preserved in cathedrals, monasteries and churches. The famous staff allegedly given by Christ to St. Patrick, was taken from Christ Church Cathedral in Dublin in 1538 and burnt to dust. But many relics did survive, salvaged by the faithful in the earnest hope that one day they would live to see the Church of Rome reinstated and that they could then be returned to the buildings that had originally housed them. Some probably were during the short-lived counter-reformation of Queen Mary I before being taken back into safekeeping after the accession of her sister Elizabeth. 
it's clear that many came into the hands of wealthy gentry. The memoirs of the Jesuit John Gerard recorded how he acquired the relics of St Thomas of Canterbury and the Holy Thorn from Catholic lay people who'd rescued them after the Henrician Reformation and how the arm bone of the virgin martyr St Vita was given to him by a Protestant minister. These and others were taken across the channel. Um, there's the Holy Thorn. Uh, taken across the channel to religious houses and colleges abroad, where there was less risk that they would be confiscated during raids on recusant houses and burnt on bonfires of vanities. They were eventually repatriated to England after Catholic emancipation in the 19th century. Notable Irish relics were also rescued and taken to safety on the continent. The head of St Bridget was saved from the profanation of Down Cathedral, by Lord Grey in 1538 and transported to the Habsburg court of Rudolf II in Vienna. Later, it came into the possession of Don Juan de Borgia, Philip II's ambassador, who donated it to a Jesuit church in Lisbon, where it was installed with much ceremony in 1588. One of Bridget's fingers seems to have made its way to Cologne, where it's preserved in the parish church of St. Martin, according to the Acta Sanctorum. Against the backdrop of the defiant resurgence of Roman Catholicism in the 17th century, relics also travelled in the other direction to replenish those that had been lost during the Reformation. In 1643, a ship from Bilbao, which was forced to land in Cornwall en route to Ireland, was found to contain St Peter's teeth, a vial of Mary Magdalene's tears, and fragments of the True Cross. It was sometimes a struggle to persuade lay people to relinquish the material remnants of Catholicism's glorious past that came into their hands. This was a persisting problem in England and in Ireland, even after the establishment of the Episcopal hierarchy uh, after 1618. Relics were simultaneously conduits of memory and potent sources of supernatural power, and in the constant presence of danger, there were strong incentives for wishing to keep them in close proximity. One Staffordshire gentleman, for instance, kept the remains of St Chad in his bedhead, while in the 1650s, a house in Galway contained a wooden tabernacle ornamented with gilded mouldings containing relics. There are also many early modern examples of the medieval practice of fragmentation. Post-Reformation Catholics divided and cut off pieces to send as gifts and tokens to relatives. John Points gave the arm bone of St Thomas Cantaloupe to his sister in Paris, a companion of Mary Ward and later third superior of the Institute in Paris in 1651. The peregrinations of these relics around Europe and their dispersal operated as a metaphor for the condition of English and Irish Catholicism, a mobile diaspora that was nevertheless part of a monolithic institution and a united community that would exist in perpetuity. And where ancient relics have been casualties of Protestant iconoclasm, empty reliquaries sometimes functioned as substitutes. In Elizabethan Somerset, William Weston met an old man who revered the linen case in which one of the nails that had pinned Christ to the crucifix at Calvary had once been displayed, after this had been removed as a magnet for superstition by the Protestant bishop John Jewell. In this way, voids became a fresh focus of veneration. 
Similarly, a girdle that had touched the relic of a true cross at Tipperary was used to cure an Irish woman tortured by magical spells in 1609. Alongside these tendencies, we may note the powerful Philip that the Reformation delivered to Catholic antiquarianism. It served to stimulate efforts to preserve the memory of physical objects that had been victims of the Protestant war against idols. Sir Thomas Habington's mid-17th century survey of Worcestershire, for instance, sought to preserve within these paper walls what that strong rock cannot keep. The passage quoted here referred to holy places in the landscape, but the sentiment applied equally well to saintly remains. Thus, an anonymous account of the rites of Durham, written in 1593, carefully recorded for posterity remembrance of sacred objects, rituals and spaces associated with St Cuthbert, including his miraculous banner, which had been burnt by Catherine Whittingham, wife of the dean, in notable contempt and disgrace of all ancient and godly relics. Such texts functioned as a metaphorical reliquary for memory, even where the objects themselves had proved ephemeral. Holy remnants of the medieval past were augmented and complemented by a second category, the new and ever-growing pool of relics associated with the priests and laypeople who harboured them, who were put to death by the Tudor and Stuart regimes, ostensibly not for religious crimes but political ones, not for heresy but for treason. The earliest of these new martyrs were Thomas More, John Fisher and the Carthusian monks who resisted the dissolution. All of them were the subject of vigorous cults within a generation. More's hat and hair shirt have been transmitted down the centuries. The latter was a precious possession of the Bridgetines and accompanied them on their journey to Belgium, Lisbon and eventually South Brent in Devon. There are many other examples of spontaneous canonisation centuries ahead of the formal beatification of the martyrs by the church in the 20th century. In 1572, one William Tessamond was hauled before the High Commission in York for possessing hair from the beard of the disgraced Earl of Northumberland, leader of the Northern Rebellion, which he'd cut off when his head was displayed in the toll booth. But the pace of relic production stepped up with the arrival of the missionaries trained in the Low Countries in the 1570s and their capture and execution as traitors. Cuthbert Main, hung, drawn and quartered in 1577, was the proto-martyr of the English mission and Edmund Campion's death in 1581 marked the beginning of a period of intense persecution. The executions of these priests and laypeople were witnessed by their followers and co-religionists who scrambled to gather up mementos of these men and women whom they believed had earned themselves a permanent place in paradise. After Bishop Connor O'Devaney of Down and Connor and the priest Patrick O'Glochlin were put to death in Dublin in 1612, the crowd carried away the former's head, dipped cloths in blood and even shaved splinters off the gallows. For their part, the authorities made concerted efforts to prevent this. They were determined not to allow durable, material remnants of traitors to be carried away for fear that they would become foci for resistance and militancy. Various steps were taken to prevent this happening. Officials were ordered to burn all body parts, garments and even straw on the scaffold. 
After the execution of Ralph Corby in 1644, the apron and sleeves of the hangman were also destroyed so that the papist dogs might have nothing to keep as relics. As in the case of Thomas Maxfield, put to death at Tyburn in 1616, the mangled limbs of convicting priests were buried in pits beneath the bodies of common felons and criminals. There was a certain irony at the heart of the Protestant theatre of punishment. The ritual of quartering, a symbolic punishment recalling how these priests had divided and severed the body politic, was intended as the ultimate form of humiliation. But it may in fact have helped to make the martyrs' remains more accessible to the faithful. It assisted the process of pious fragmentation and dismemberment that had been integral to the cult of relics since the 13th century. Sometimes this process was given supernatural assistance. In 1591, the thumb of Edmund Jennings miraculously detached itself and fell into the hands of a young virgin called Lucy Ridley, who went on to become an Augustinian nun. And if the purpose of these rites of judicial violence was to obliterate all physical trace and memory of their victims, they repeatedly had the opposite effect, etching um, them in collective Catholic consciousness for many generations. Moreover, Catholics went to extraordinary lengths to obtain relics. Cardinal William Allen wrote of the godly, greedy appetite of people in England and abroad for pieces of the martyrs. Thomas Maxfield's remains were dug up under cover of darkness in a gruesome act of excavation and taken into the custody of the Spanish ambassador, Count Gondomar, who took them back to Spain with him when he completed his diplomatic tour of duty, where they resided until they were translated back to Downside Abbey in the early 20th century. In Jacobean London, the recovery of the martyrs' body parts was in large part coordinated by the Spanish noblewoman, Luisa de Carvajal, who employed sophisticated methods to embalm and preserve them. Others bribed or bargained with officials and executioners to obtain this sacred treasure, In 1616, a young man bought the stockings of Thomas Atkinson, executed at York from the hangman as a relic. Um, Among the relics that still survive are Edward Oldcorn's eye, gouged out of his head by one of his disciples and encased in a contemporary silver reliquary. A wisp of the hair of Anne Lyne, Uh, put to death for sheltering a succession of priests, and, of course, the remains of the Irish popish plot martyr, Oliver Plunkett. His head was taken to Rome before ending up in the care of the Dominican nuns at Drogheda in 1725. Catholic relic culture in Ireland arguably became increasingly mobile. The efforts of Protestant officials to prevent people from carrying off body parts and to demonstrate their ephemerality by destroying them probably had the effect of fostering a high level of interest in secondary relics, in the clothing and other personal belongings of the martyrs. People eagerly collected their spectacles, books, rosaries, and new day, like campions here. Uh, And they also preserved the liturgical equipment that itinerant priests carried around with them to celebrate Mass. Here's a portable trunk that uh, is said to have been the Jesuit Edmund Arrowsmith's now at Stonyhurst. 
They also collected the letters that the martyrs wrote from prison and the texts they composed. Even their signatures became softarter after as sacred souvenirs, or what Olinka Rublak has called grapho relics. The Oxford martyr George Napper's signature, collected by Sir Kenelm Digby in the mid-17th century and carefully cut out of another manuscript, is enclosed in a small envelope among the papers of Bede Cam at Downside. Even more remarkably, the calyx of a small pink flower that Thomas Maxfield carried with him to Tyburn and held tightly until he expired has survived in the Westminster archives. It's wrapped in a folded square of red paper and kept alongside a letter written by an unknown gentleman to whom the relic had been given as an eyewitness from which the names of the writer and recipient have been carefully obliterated. More notoriously, an exquisite image of Henry Garnet convicted for complicity in the gunpowder plot in 1606 was said to have appeared on a piece of straw stained with his blood. Catholics saw the miniature engraving of his portrait on this ephemeral relic as evidence of the hand of God at work. Protestants claimed that it was an ingenious and deceptive example of human workmanship. Claims of incorruptibility and incombustibility became associated with many of these items. Everard Hans's heart was said to have leapt out of the flames in 1581. William Ward's was providentially preserved from incineration in 1641 and remained untainted for 15 days. The handkerchief in which it was carried from the scene itself remained mysteriously intact. The bowels of Charles Barker, put to death in the wake of the Popish plot scare in 1679, refused to burn, despite extra faggots being flung upon them. And the preservation of Oliver Prunkett's head, entire, was likewise perceived as evidence of divine approbation. The remains of Peter Wright, uh, executed in 1651, gave off a fragrant fragrant perfume which could only have come from heaven. After hanging a full year in the open air, when the shoulder and attached arm of Robert Sutton was taken down from its pike, all the flesh was found to be consumed, except the thumb and forefinger with which he'd consecrated the host, which was regarded as a striking miracle in defence of the contested doctrine of transubstantiation. The Jesuit annual letters are filled with reports of the healing and other wonders wrought by these holy remnants. The hand of Edmund Arrowsmith was widely sought after in 17th and 18th century Lancashire and cured a variety of ailments from paralysis to hysterical fits. In 1910, a Liverpool man was cured of warts and a young girl of the ailment that had crippled her by being rubbed with a piece of holy linen in which the relic was wrapped. The arm of Oliver Plunkett had also once been owned by a family uh, in Worcestershire where it uh, acquired a reputation for curing goiters in children. These stories also reveal that these new post-Reformation relics, like surviving medieval ones, often remained in the possession of the laity despite clerical attempts to regulate their veneration in line with Tridentine prescriptions. Devout men and women became their custodians, keeping them in caskets in their homes and sometimes carrying them around in their pockets. An embroidered box dating from the second quarter of the 17th century contains part of the shoulder blade and upper arm of one of the four priests martyred at Durham in 1590. 
the Countess of Arundel, wore a relic of Robert Savile intimately about her person, and two sisters whose chamber was raided in the later 1580s were revealed to have a variety of superstitious relics, including a little cloth wrapped in paper with a drop of blood. To be found in possession of objects of this kind was incriminating evidence of adherence to a false religion, if not a telltale sign of political disloyalty. Relics were by no means the only material focus of Catholic devotion. In England and Ireland, as in Europe, the desire for sacramentals, any day, medals, crucifixes, holy grains and St Ignatius water was apparently insatiable. Robert Southall wrote to Robert Parsons in 1586 calling for thousands of wax tablets to be sent to England. Such was the demand from people that we are unable to gratify them. These and other sanctified objects were widely employed by the missionary priests as instruments of indoctrination and conversion, as well as sources of thaumaturgic power, as a long succession of anecdotes about their role in extinguishing fires and remedying ailments in Jesuit uh, memoranda reveals. The fact that they'd been blessed by the Pope made acquisition and use of them a blatant act of political disloyalty and a statute of 1571 linked distribution of such vain and superstitious things directly with dissemination of Pius V's bull, excommunicating Elizabeth I and absolving her subjects of allegiance to her. Along with rosaries, uh, which the elector Maximilian of Bavaria made it compulsory for his subjects to own in 1601, they became confessional identifiers and badges of belonging. Some, like Lady Magdalene Montague of Battle in Sussex, wore them openly. Others secreted them in the folds of their clothing to evade detection. The relative scarcity of priests in England made such items a crucial substitute for regular access to sacramental grace and absolution. The case of John Gerard, who made a rosary for himself out of a discarded orange peel, is indicative of the creative improvisations Catholics made to preserve their devotional lives in these extreme circumstances. Perishable goods had to be a substitute for more durable materials like beads or wood. A pupil at Saint-Omer in the 1590s crafted a tiny wooden shrine, two and a half inches in height, which when opened showed the instruments of the passion. This too could readily be hidden. Even more intriguing is a playing card discovered by Richard Williams in the archive at Hatfield House, the reverse of which resembles a religious triptych. Found in the comb case of one of the Duke of Norfolk's men, it was confiscated by the Lieutenant of the Tower of London as evidence of his infatuation with popery. In this instance, the ephemeral medium of paper has been used to create a very personal devotional tool. This item bears comparison with the fascinating artefacts that survive from the period of intense persecution of the Japanese Christians in the 17th century. Designed to deceive the viewer, these Kirishitan relics and their English counterparts might be described as components of a material culture of dissimulation. More generally, printed and manuscript texts played a vitally important part in the lives of those uh, of, of Catholics uh, 
in, under repression in the 16th and 17th centuries. If they functioned as dumb preachers and surrogate priests, they were also important aids to private and domestic devotion. And they too could breed a degree of autonomy and independence that was in tension with clerical direction. Books imported from the continent that contained guidance on using the rosary sometimes included fold-out diagrams, such as the one incorporated in John Buck's Instructions for the Use of the Beads, 1589, which was dedicated to Lady Anne Hungerford. Such images could function as a two-dimensional substitute for the real thing. The fact that only a few pictures of this type survive may be testimony not merely to their vulnerability, but also to the probability that many of them were simply worn out by use. Here, the boundary between sacred object and printed ephemera begins to break down. Attention might also be drawn to medieval images of pity from which the indulgences have been struck out, like this one from the Bodleian in Oxford. As Martha Driver has commented, the mutilation of these prints did not render them unusable. Paradoxically, it helped to safeguard them from complete destruction. Their defacement may even have enhanced the tendency to revere these illicit and fragile texts as sacred objects in the wake of the Reformation. The final part of this paper examines how this residual and resurgent relic culture was perceived by the Protestant authorities and populace and the techniques by which its appeal was diffused. At the heart of the reformers' vociferous polemical assault upon the cult of relics was a corrosive critique of material Christianity, a critique of medieval Catholicism's emphasis on external physical objects rather than interior contemplation of intangible truths, combined with a claim that veneration of them was tantamount to pagan idolatry. Protestants equated this with heathen worship of trees, rocks and springs and of elaborately wrought artefacts manufactured by human hands like the golden calf and the brazen serpent in the Old Testament. God was a pure spirit who could not be envisaged or depicted as a person or a thing. John Calvin produced one of the most scurrilous tracts on this topic, a savagely comic denunciation of the famous relics littered across the churches of the continent, the main objective of which was to expose the vast majority of these as counterfeit. The brain of St Peter, he declared, was in fact a marble stone, and many hallowed bones were those of asses and dogs rather than women and men. Too many, he said, simply suspended disbelief. They shut their eyes through superstition to the end that they seeing should see nothing at all. That is to say, they dare not look in good earnest to consider what the thing is. In other words, they deliberately avoided identifying relics as the mere material objects they were. They mistook the worthless detritus of daily existence for precious conduits to the divine. He urged them to lift the veil from their eyes and to recognise the stupidity of venerating a pile of rubbish. The vocabulary deployed in Stephen Withers' English translation of Calvin's tract should be underlined. Mimicking the French, he repeatedly uses the words trash, merchandise, baggage, gear and vain trifles to undermine the relics he describes. 
The same derogatory language saturates the English translation of the Leiden professor John Polyander's disputation against the adoration of the relics of saints departed of 1611, which Henry Hexham, uh, the translator, dedicated to Lady Vere, a descendant of the family linked with the unholy blood of Hales, to reveal the devilish cozenage of the papists in devising this cult. The purpose of these texts is metaphorically to reduce relics to the status of mere ephemera. The sacred remnants treasured by Roman Catholics are polemically conflated with frivolous consumables of negligible value uh, and little use. Items once regarded as transcendent and priceless are reconceptualized as economic objects. In a society in which the impulse for the acquisition of material goods was rapidly expanded, they are redefined as cheap commodities. This terminology finds a further telling echo in the central documents of the Reformation uh, uh, themselves. The letters of the Henrician commissioners for the dissolution of the monasteries deployed a host of similarly sarcastic nouns and adjectives. In 1538, Dr. London reported to Thomas Cromwell that he'd pulled down the image of Our Lady of Caversham and taken away all the pretty relics and trinkets about the same. And a few years earlier, the visitation articles of Bishop Shaxton of Salisbury had denounced popular reverence of stinking boots, mucky combs, rotten girdles, filthy rags, and other such pelfrey beyond estimation. John Fox's Acts and Monuments incorporated a woodcut picture depicting the papists packing away their poultry and shipping away their trinkets overseas during the reign of the godly young Josiah, Edward VI, when the Temple of God had been conscientiously purged. The same terms and others, such as trumpery, also appear in the Edwardian and early Elizabethan inventories of confiscated church goods popish vestments, ornaments, and other apparatus of worship. To quote Eamon Duffy, these texts sought to depersonalise and desacralize the material framework for the medieval system of salvation, to transform the name deposit of meritorious giving into so much saleable lumber. Similar phrases are a feature of the official catalogues of items confiscated from the homes of recusants and the parcels of contraband goods seized at port throughout the period that survive among the state papers. A list of books, rosary beads and other suspicious objects found in a fardel opened by a justice of the peace and the town constables of Lewis in Sussex in 1582 is endorsed in a contemporary hand, an inventory of certain popish stuff. This included pieces of the bone of St William of Norwich and Mary Magdalene and a little paper with a piece of old cotton marked with the name of Mary, Queen of Scots. The mocking tone and disparaging vocabulary of these records also suffuses much Protestant polemic, including the corrosively anti-Catholic writings of the soldier come and commentator on Irish affairs, Barnaby Rich. Protestants like Rich saw relics as part of the category of traditions that had been cunningly devised by the papacy to pull the wool eye over the eyes of the ignorant laity, a kind of opium of the people, According to the 39 Articles of Religion, the cult of hallowed remains was a fond thing, vainly invented. 
The reformers contrasted these accumulated traditions with the original fount of scripture. This usage is neatly encapsulated in the title of Thomas Beacon's The Relics of Rome, an extended dissection of the trifling traditions, crooked constitutions and fond fantasies by which the Catholic Church had bamboozled the populace into obedience. These old wives' tales and stubborn survivals, Protestant ministers believed, would be rapidly driven into extinction by the advent of the gospel. The sentiment finds visual expression in another image from Fox, a lively picture describing the weight and substance of God's most blessed word against the doctrines and vanities of man's traditions. An image of a set of scales held by the blindfolded figure of justice in which the single tome of the Bible outweighs all the Pope's paraphernalia, notwithstanding the desperate athletic efforts of the devil to drag the pan down. The profundity of scripture easily wins out over such ephemeral trifles. The title of a later edition, dating from 1656, described them as the hay and stubble of Antichrist. It's no coincidence that this woodcut, showing how light is the chaff of popish toys, first appeared in a 1572 edition of the writings of Tyndale and other early evangelical martyrs. In the eyes of Protestants, the true relics of God's saints were not physical or bodily entities, but rather the edifying and virtuous example which godly men left behind for posterity in speech and writing. And supreme among these was the Bible itself. According to Thomas Cranmer, scripture was the most holy relic that remained upon earth. The image of the scales became a pictorial commonplace and was frequently republished, especially at junctures of anti-Catholic crisis. It was simplified in a ballad entitled A New Year's Gift for the Pope, the surviving copy of which dates from 1625, around the time of the failure of the Spanish match and blessed revolution in foreign policy that saw the Stuart monarchy align itself more firmly with continental Protestant powers. Come see the difference plainly decided between truth and falsehood. It invites its hearers and readers. Not all the Pope's trinkets, which here are brought forth, can balance the Bible for weight and true worth. Your bells, beads and crosses, you see will not do it, or pull down your scale with a devil to boot. The same critical years seem to have seen the first appearance of the travels of time loaden with popish trumperies, an earlier version of the image with which this paper began, and of a broadside entitled A Discovery of a Jesuit's Trumpery, Trumpery newly packed out of England. This takes the familiar form of a verse catalogue of trinkets and relics, from indulgences and pardons to holy tapers, holy bells, holy hemp, and last to stuff it full, a nun's bastard and a roaring bull, together with a stinging indictment of the swarm of verminous priests who bring such stuff into England, whom it warns will end up locked in Newgate before being sent to the gallows. This image reappeared in 1629 in a translation of Jean Chassaignon's The Merchandises of Popish Priests, a French diatribe against the false, deceitful and counterfeit wares marketed by these spiritual mountebanks. 
These images circulated again at later moments of Protestant emergency, in 1641, on the eve of the outbreak of the Civil War, and again in the late 1670s, in the context of the Popish plot and exclusion crisis. A pamphlet of 1673 advertised a cart load of cheats and fopperies for sale for a penny, just like the ephemeral sheet on which this piece of mockery was printed. In 1688, in the wake of the Glorious Revolution, a ballad told of the relics that could be purchased from the dismantled Jesuit chapel at the Savoy in London. And a year later, a set of satirical playing cards included an image of a priest marching off with bag and baggage, with a bundle of crucifixes, rosaries and other popish items. Many of these texts utilise words that have meanings that closely resemble those now carried by the term ephemera. In the early modern period, this was largely deployed to describe a fever of short duration or an insect that lived for no more than a day. While I've not yet found it deployed in an anti-Catholic text, it is significant that its close linguistic cousins were employed interchangeably with the term relic which absorbed some of their negative connotations of transience and triviality. James Kearney and Peter Stalibras have already traced the etymological journey of trinket, trumpery and trifle out of polemical Protestant discourse and seen this as part of the prehistory of the Enlightenment idea of the fetish. Here I filled out the picture a little further. One way in which post-Reformation Catholicism responded to this set of developments was by reasserting the material durability and robustness of the sacred objects their opponents disparaged. Stories of the miraculous incombustibility and indestructibility of martyrs' relics may be read as a riposte to Protestantism's insistence upon their literal and metaphorical ephemerality. Two final points should be made. The first is the observation that godly Protestants like Edward Deering sometimes talked about printed ephemera, like ballads, pamphlets and chapbooks in the same terms as relics. They spoke of them as childish follies, witless devices, toys and trifles invented by the devil and Pope to seduce the uneducated. Ministers uh, like John Barlow even worried that people might purchase cheaply printed sermons instead of going to hear them and sit at home dreaming that a piece of paper would suffice to get faith for salvation. The connection between relics and ephemera was also cemented by the state's increasing awareness that these two types of items were being distributed by the same salesman by peddlers and chapmen who, infected with popery, carry abroad and disperse superstitious trumperies. A proclamation of 1618 ordered these individuals of dubious respectability and marginal criminality to be licensed for this very reason. The second point concerns the strategy for dispelling the power of popish relics and trifles embodied by the texts I've described. It's a strategy of printing and publishing for the purpose of refutation, of exposing ideas and objects to the naked eye and the clear light of day in order to reveal their falsehood. We see this technique of discovery used in many other anti-Catholic tracts of the period, including the work of Anthony Mundy, Samuel Harsnett and John Gee. Sometimes, moreover, it has a pictorial dimension. Bernard Garter's New Year's Gift... uh, dedicated to the Pope's Holiness 
1579, for instance, includes a detailed fold-out table depicting certain of the Pope's merchandise lately sent over into England, a warning to unwary Protestants who might be deceived by these pretty trifles and toys. Other examples include the facsimile of an indulgenced paper image of the Virgin's foot, included in Anthony Wotton's defence of an attack on William Perkins' Reformed Catholic, and Robert Prickett's pamphlet, The Jesuits' Miracles or New Popish Wonders, the title page of which reproduced a Catholic image first published in a lengthy Latin treatise, which may also have circulated as a devotional print. One of the ironies of this technique was that it inadvertently aided the circulation of texts that Protestants regarded as invitations to superstition. It is at least possible that Catholics could have appropriated these polemical publications for alternative purposes and made them the subject of the very reverence which the propagandists sought to dispel. Intended to function as prophylactics against idolatry, they could instead become objects of veneration themselves. In this way, these iconoclastic texts could have the paradoxical effect not of discrediting Catholic material culture, but of cementing it. In conclusion, in this paper I've endeavoured to cast fresh light on Christian materiality in early modern England and Ireland, and the notable part played by relics, sacramentals and other devotional objects in sustaining the faith of these communities under the cross. Sent as gifts and tokens to friends, relatives and patrons at home and abroad, paradoxically these fragments of the holy help to bind together a dispersed minority, uh, at least in England, rescued during the dissolution of the monasteries, imported uh, abroad and lovingly gathered up under the scaffold. Such items served as sources of supernatural power, as powerful mementos of the courage, piety and heroism of old and new saintly heroes and as emblems of the self-conscious confessional identity of those who revered them. Their possession, preservation and use became an act of spirited defiance against the Protestant authorities who were simultaneously engaged in a sustained campaign to undermine their seductive appeal to the laity. One consequence of this latter process was that relics, understood in a broad and expansive sense, became steadily intertwined in reformed thinking with the concept of ephemera. Herein, as Peter Stalibras and others have observed, lie some of the seeds of the denigration, suspicion and distrust of material culture that modern historians have inherited from the post-Reformation era. Assumptions forged in the crucible of the polemical debates and sectarian conflicts of the era have exerted a lingering influence and contributed significantly to the neglect of the object in historical and literary investigation. Paralleling the way in which the Victorian visual have been regarded as marginal features of Protestant culture, so too has the material been sidelined from serious scholarly inquiry. And yet, these same iconoclastic discourses have also helped to sanitise and quarantine certain categories of religious things and to render them legitimate by redefining them as artefacts of aesthetic taste and monetary value. Emptied of their sacred contents, reliquaries, for instance, became regarded as forms of art and commodity. 
The migration of some relics and images into museums and galleries has enabled us to valorise and view them anew, free of the danger of idolatry, even as it implicitly reinforces the very assumptions that originally created this category. In this and other ways, the conflation of material objects with popish ephemera persists in shaping the parameters within and the lenses through which we conduct our investigations. Thank you.